Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Lesson three from the third quarter, 2023 Ephesians. John Pauline will be our moderator. Ashley will offer our prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sabbath day that you've given us once again. Thank you so much for the Pinal family here that are gathered today and all over the world. Please be with us as we dive into Ephesians again and continue our study. Open our hearts and minds and also be with our moderator and be with all of our loved ones wherever they are in the world. Please keep us safe and thank you so much for all your blessings. Amen. This is the third in a series on the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul. And in this particular study, we'll be looking at the last part of Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a portion of Ephesians that has been less familiar to me in the past, perhaps because it repeats a few things that have been said elsewhere, and the language is a little bit more difficult, kind of like the first part of chapter 1 but I was more familiar with that. So why don't we begin by familiarizing ourselves with the passage, and we're looking at about nine verses here, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, so this is what we would call a prayer report. Paul is basically saying, well, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he goes on to tell them what it was that he was praying about. So that's the larger context of the passage we're looking at. But I want to start with verse 19, zero in on that just a little bit. Verse 19 once more. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power? All right, so here Paul is really emphasizing this idea of power. And I guess the question might be, to start us out, why would he be emphasizing God's power so much? From what you've read so far in Ephesians and from what we've talked about in the previous two sessions, why would God's power be such an emphasis? It basically says it twice in this one verse. In my translation, it says, his incomparably great power. So his power is the working of his mighty strength. All right, so what's the point in this strong emphasis on God's power? All right, Rita? I wonder, is this because what Paul is trying to say is that the power that God uses, not necessarily the power he has, but the power that he has that he uses is not the kind of power that humans, and particularly those in Ephesus at the time, would be familiar with. Okay, I think that's an excellent observation in the larger sense. Although here he doesn't seem to be saying what kind of power, he's just saying he's got a lot of it. It's a power to raise from the dead, Uh which no other gods that the Ephesians or any other gods in the pagan world were able to do. All right, yeah. Terry? I'm really not sure whether this question is even on the right track, but in lesson one, you had us read, or we looked at in Acts, and I understood you to say that was the background for what was happening here for Ephesians. So then my question becomes, is he highlighting and or contrasting God's power in view of whatever power they thought Diana had? Okay. There's a proposal that perhaps the power of Diana might be lying in the background here. Okay. Henry? 
the concept of power was kind of contrasting with what people were seeing. Christ was not necessarily a manifestation of power. It was actually, even for us today, it will be like a defeat. Your Savior was crucified, and now you are claiming that this is successful. This is exactly what I am meaning. There is power in something that you cannot even conceive as powerful. So I think this is the emphasis that he is making given the circumstances that the Savior was crucified and dead, and now he is resurrected. So he's talking about a different type, as Rita was mentioning, a different type of power, but making the emphasis, this was not the defeat. This was actually victory. Mm. Yeah, the cross by itself would be hard to sell in the ancient world. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it says something about him that completely changes the meaning of the cross. Yeah. Livius? The immeasurable greatness of his power to be able to speak and have things materialize out of nothing. I'm thinking of creation. That is immeasurable greatness of power on display. But it says that in verse 20 that this power is worked in Christ through Christ when he raised him from the dead. So maybe there's something about that that's important. And also my translation, I have the ESV, it uses power, greatness of his power and the working of his great might, two different words. Yes, that's correct. He's piling up words again. And that's the question, why would that be so important in this context. Yeah. In the previous passage, it was piling up words regarding chosen, predestined, planned, purpose, good pleasure, etc. That everything that we need is not only happening now, it's been planned from eternity and therefore it's unassailable. You know, it's not going to change. Here, power seems to be the big theme. Lou. To me, It's the assurance that in the end, God is the winner. He has power over Satan, and he's had to let it play out in our world, unfortunately, I'm sure for him too, but he is the winner in the end. His power is supreme. So that's an excellent point here in context, because a lot of people can plan to win, but in order to win, you have to be better than the opponent, right? So Paul said, first of all, God plans to win, and you can count on that. His mindset isn't going to change. But in the second part, Paul is saying he also has the power to carry out that mindset. You don't have to be afraid that things are hanging in the balance. All right, Dan. You have the small church in Ephesus. Ephesus being, as you point out, the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. And so I suspect the people in that congregation felt pretty intimidated not only by the Roman government, but by the great temple of Artemis. I'm sympathetic with that a little bit because I grew up in a very small Japanese church in San Francisco. And when I compared it with some of the great cathedrals and other churches in San Francisco, our church was pretty insignificant. And I never heard anyone make the comment, well, we're more powerful than all the other churches or (laughs) more powerful than the government or whatever else. But in fact, I think this is what Paul is suggesting, that in fact, that when God's on your side, you're more powerful than anybody. And I must say, I certainly didn't feel that way when I was young. I think as I've gotten older, I can understand that a little bit better. But I think we can all be pretty intimidated by bigger and more powerful institutions. Yeah, and what they were facing there in Ephesus was three great powers in a real sense. First of all, as has been pointed out, the power of religion. The Temple of Diana was massive many times larger than the Parthenon, which we all think is pretty cool. So it's gone now, but we do have expressions of it and have a sense of how it was built, etc. So the religion of Jesus compared with the power of Diana would seem like a slam dunk the wrong way. On top of that, you've got the culture. The culture of the empire was tremendous. You know, the theaters, the plays, the concerts, etc., The culture was very, very powerful, very, very attractive. In comparison, you have words, you see. Third of all was the empire, and the empire was physically powerful. The empire could change your life in an instant with a snap of a fingers. So they were facing three great powers. And so Paul comes back here and says, I've got a power that beats all of them. None of them has ever resurrected anyone from the dead. None of them. The power that is in Jesus Christ is greater than all these powers that you face. Lou. I heard a pastor say that God and me make an army. And I love that. We have nothing to be afraid of because God's power. And yet there's a misuse of power today 
in the human sense of the word, it becomes a very selfish target, a goal of people to want to be in power over other people. And that's so opposite of God's power, just totally opposite of God's giving people the privilege of having the power, the freedom to choose. So there's two kinds of power. There's God's power, which is limitless and selfless and loving. And then there's the worldly power that is self-seeking and climb over everybody else to get to the top. All right. Nancy and Robert? Bob and I read a bit in the Avenus Bible commentary on the historical setting of Ephesians. And maybe you know more of the history, but to add to the empirical power, they were saying that it was Nero in charge and they called him Bloody Nero. And you can imagine, what if you're governor is called bloody so-and-so what's some of the history of him yeah that's right 62 if that's when the letter was written as most scholars think that would be right in the middle of nero's reign and he was definitely i think one would say mentally ill in a sense he had some really strange behaviors and he would hold concerts in which he would play violin solos and stuff and he was horrible and everybody was supposed to sit there smile and cheer and all the rest of that on another occasion there was a fire in the city and it is thought that in one of his not quite healthy spells he said it himself but when the people started saying it's nero's the one that burned the city down the mobs were coming his way he said no it's the christians that did it he blamed it on the christians and as a punishment for burning down the city, he set up 30,000 funeral pyres, if you will, in which Christians were burned alive in that setting. So Nero is understood, I think, to have murdered his own mother, who he perceived as a threat to his power, etc. So yeah, what you read there, I think, is accurate. There were some serious issues with that guy, and he was the one in charge when Paul's writing this letter. And Paul faces him, goes face to face with him a few years after this. All right, John. Reading verses 15 through to 19, Paul, to me, seems to be referring to his Damascus Road experience. He's talking about God's power, and he knows that God's power is not that of coercion or force, because he's experienced that on Damascus Road. And on Damascus Road, he saw the light of Christ, to which he refers in verse 18. I uh, ask that your mind will be open to see his light, which is what happened to him on Damascus Road. All right. That's an intriguing suggestion, as Paul perhaps echoing his own conversion experience just a little bit here. How is God's power demonstrated? Several of you have mentioned already in verse 20. You have the resurrection from the dead, then seating him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come, placed all things under his feet, pointed him to be head over everything from the church. So there's four arguments here, as I would read it. The resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus to God's throne, the making of everything subservient to him and placing him in charge of the church. So Paul gives four arguments here that the power of Jesus is superior to any of the deities or the powers that the Ephesians would have to face. So let's go back through this text and look at it a little bit more verse by verse. We'll go to verse 15 again of Ephesians 1, and we'll read them a verse or two at a time. But before, let me just note in number two that there are two prayer reports in the book of Ephesians. This one here in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, and then there's a second one, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and we'll look at both of these briefly together here. So, all right, chapter 1, verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. All right, just an observation in passing. Texts like this lead people to suspect that maybe it wasn't Ephesus that this letter was actually sent to originally, because Paul had spent three years there. He knew pretty much everybody who was anybody in the church personally. And he said, ever since I heard about your faith, that sounds like somebody who hasn't actually met them yet. It's not a 
slam dunk or anything like that, but it's an interesting observation. Paul doesn't seem to know very much about the Ephesian church on a firsthand basis. How could this be? Well, it's interesting that some manuscripts have to the church of Ephesus and others do not. In other words, in some manuscripts, it's left out. Which of those is original? That, of course, is a challenging thing to say. I think also chapter 3, verse 2, while we are on that subject, he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Would they have had to hear about it if this was someone they knew intimately? So for those reasons, the scholars have questioned, and the fact that the manuscripts are not unanimous that this was a letter to Ephesus. One other possibility is that this might have been a circular letter. It doesn't really have a lot of detail in it where Paul says, oh, so-and-so from your church came and talked to me, and here's what I think of that, or oh, you wrote me a letter, and here's my response to that. It seems more like a sermon, like something abroad and general kind of thing. And so one possibility is that it was originally a circular letter. Paul just wrote it to churches in general, and then maybe filled in specific churches to make sure that they got there, you know, like putting in an address, etc. But in the recollections of the larger church, there was some uncertainty as to where it was actually written. Anyway, just a little aside as we go past there, but that's not going to be critical to how we understand the letter, because aside from what we've already talked about, we probably don't know a ton about the Ephesian church. We do know that they're facing particularly powerful satanic forces that's one critical piece of evidence. And of course, they're facing the power of the empire. If this is the governor's residence, Roman governors had the power of the sword. They could kill anybody at any time without asking questions. They had a complete executive, judicial, legislative power. It may be contested at times. Governors could be removed, but on a whim, they could do some very dangerous things. And People who are not in line with the government have to always be watching their backs in a situation like that. Michael? John the Evangelist reportedly ended his life in Ephesus. When did he come there? Or do we know? Well, that's a very interesting question. And recently, I helped to guide a tour to Turkey and Greece. And it was Paul and John tour. And I said, Ephesus is the only place that we know both of them were. Paul lived there at least three years. John may have lived there 20 years. We do know it was around the 70s and 80s that Jews began to be excluded from the synagogue in Palestine. And that would be a time when people like John and those who are following him might not really feel at home there anymore. And so it's thought that John moved to Ephesus, maybe 85, something like that. And generally thought he took Mary with him, Jesus' mother. She would have been fairly elderly then, but being a very young bride, she might have been in her 80s, perhaps 90. So it's a possibility that John took her. If he took her to Ephesus, it must not have been much later than 80. So he might have been there 20 years. All right, 16 and 17. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. All right. So here he's praying for them, reporting on what he has prayed. He is thanking God. And thanksgiving seems to be central in Paul's prayers. And that's perhaps something that we can consider. Are our prayers often begging God for things? Do we take time to thank God for things? And Thanksgiving has two requirements. One is to perceive God's work in your life, and two is to thank him for it. And as I've suggested before, if you're not noticing God's presence in your life, then pick up a dictionary and pick up everything in there that you haven't thanked God for. You know, like apples, apricots, and apes, you know, right there on the same page. So dictionaries full of things we've never thanked God for. So being aware of God's blessings and then thanking him for them. Paul seems to have made that very, very central. But above all, he's praying for them to know God. Verse 18. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. All right, so he's praying for them to have hope, and he's praying for them to know God's power. 
And then, as we said, God's power is exhibited through the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, his dominion over the universe, his heading up of the church. All right, so keeping that in mind, let's read the other prayer report, Ephesians 3 and verses 14 to 21. And here, I think he talks a lot about God's power. Here, he defines in practical terms what God's power is like. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. All right, so what's this power thing all about? As you look at that second text, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, what is the purpose of that power? Why is he emphasizing God's power so much? Okay, John? He's emphasizing that the power, quotation marks, of God, because it's by beholding God that we are changed into the image of God once again. All right, Michael? Well, it's my understanding that Paul believed that the second coming was imminent, and so we should all be prepared for that rather than some distant time in the future. Mm -hmm. So you would say this emphasis on power is related to that? Yes. Okay. Come back to the text, and I think you're both saying something important here. But the part I'd want to emphasize is I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So it seems to me that in practical terms, what Paul is saying, the power of God will change your life. The power of God will transform your inner being. Transformed into what? Into love. The love, the kind of love that God has given toward us will be duplicated in us through his power. So the power of God is not so much to move mountains or do spectacular miracles in material sense, but the power of God is the change of life. Paul is not saying we're more powerful than those other gods because we can do bigger miracles than them or we can be richer than them. No, he's saying you know that God is powerful because you know what's been happening in your life. God is changing your life, and that's an evidence that God is powerful and that he is at work in you. Kind of comes back to the fruits of the Spirit we mentioned in an earlier lesson. That evidence that God is working in your life is the miracle of greater love, greater joy, greater peace, greater patience. Not absolute. All of us fall short on all of those fruits. But to have tasted them and see them growing in your life is powerful evidence of God's power. All right, Rita? And Paul, of all people, was probably the one most able to testify to God's power to change a human being. Yes. Beautiful connection. And, that's, and yes. that's surely what he was imploring that everybody else would experience that. If I can be changed, look where I was. You all knew what I was like before, and now you know what I'm like now. That's God's work, and he can do it for you too. I really, really like your connecting this thought with Paul's own conversion. So he could talk confidently about this because it had happened in his life. His life had been changed, and therefore he could speak with confidence that other people taking hold of the same gospel could have a similar experience that he did. Henry. And on top of that, he's trying to convince them that you better believe it. For human beings, it's difficult to believe that God is willing to change us, that God has the power to do it, regardless of how far we can fall. That's why he's saying, 
I am praying for you so you can be rooted and established in this love. You better believe it. He did it for me. He can do it for you. Mm -hmm. I think you've said it well, Henry. The mission of both of these prayers is that they might experience the power of God, experience the love of God. We don't want to ever back off from the idea that justification by faith is outside of ourselves. We're receiving something that we haven't earned. That's always got to be basic. But Paul doesn't stop there, just as James doesn't stop there. And Paul says, but once we have been made right with God, then we are to become more and more like him as looking in a glass, you know, more and more as we look at his face, we become accommodated to his image. So for Paul, the experience. In Thessalonians, he says, just as you have begun, I want you to do it more and more. Love, joy, peace, we may only have tasted, but Paul would say, more and more. Okay, keep growing in this. Keep learning. Keep stepping forward. All right, Daniel? And the more we reflect on God, the more we worship him, the more we'll be filled with a sense of new possibilities, of the new task, what God can accomplish through us. That's very clear at the end of chapter 3 as he ends this prayer, that you should double and treble and quadruple, whatever, what God is doing, because suddenly your understanding of what God is doing, and suddenly you see that he can accomplish much more than our narrow thinking short-sighted understanding allowed for previously. A beautiful way to word that, Daniel. Thank you. Rodney? I was also thinking about the church unity. I believe that there were different, not only Jews, there were also Gentiles. And it was only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that would help them to be united as a church which God was, or Jesus Christ was the head. And you're absolutely right, Rodney. That's exactly where Paul goes right after this. In chapter 2, he gets into the Jew and Gentile issue, and we'll, we'll come at that in a couple of weeks, I think. But that one of the greatest signs of God's miracle-working power is when Jews and Gentiles get along. It's an amazing thing when God can unite those who would otherwise be incapable of being in relationship with each other. But that's the Holy Spirit. That's the love. That's the peace. That's the patience. You know, when you're dealing with diversity, you need lots of patience because people are used to doing things differently than you. And keeping a team together, a diverse team together, is a tremendous challenge. I used to, as a pastor, mention that one of the greatest challenges is an all-nations church. I had a church in New York that had 19 nationalities in it. And they were a couple of blocks. You know, there was a German block and there was a Romanian block that were fairly sizable, a Yugoslavian block. But there were 19 ethnic groups. And to keep them all in the same direction is quite a challenging thing. But that's what the gospel can do. And when Jew and Gentile were able to come together in the same congregation, it was a miracle. Whenever that happens, it's a miracle. All right, let's go on to number four. And we'll look at Ephesians 1 again. And verse 20, we've read several times that basically he says, God's power was exhibited in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God's power is shown as an expression. Resurrection is an expression of God's power. And so the question is, how is it an expression of God's power? How does the resurrection function in that way? And I'd like you to look at several texts here that are noted in your handout under number four. How is the power of God expressed through the resurrection of Jesus? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. So keep a finger in Ephesians 1. We'll be back. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. All right, so here it tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first step. The second step is the resurrection of believers. So the power of God is demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus and a foretaste of many, many resurrections to come. But that's not all. Philippians 3, again, keeping your finger in Ephesians, go to Philippians 3 and verses 8 to 11. More than that, 
I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, so similar to 1 Corinthians, Paul notes the connection between Christ's resurrection and his own resurrection. But he seems to be saying just a little bit more. He's talking about, I want to know the power of his resurrection in the context of the fellowship of his sufferings in the context of knowing Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is not just about the second coming. The resurrection of Jesus has implications for the life we live today. And I think we can go deeper in that if we switch over to Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. In verse 21. By the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So the sense here is that the power of his resurrection is worked out in our daily lives. Notice he says that he will equip you with everything good for doing his will. He may work in you that which is pleasing to him. So what he seems to be saying is here, the power of the resurrection is made real in our lives. It's not just a physical resurrection from the dead, but it's a resurrection of our minds. It's a resurrection of our hearts. It's a resurrection of our bodies in the sense that we will do different things than we did before. The God who has power to raise the dead certainly has power to change our lives. And that seems to be a message in Hebrews 13 there. Yes, Henry. This was absolutely countercultural. I will submit the idea that if your king was crucified and then is resurrected, his people will expect that king to take revenge. Now I am back again and I will take you over. But this resurrection of Christ was with a completely opposite intention, was to win us back on love. So that resurrection had a completely different expectation. Everybody will be afraid of this king being resurrected after the way that he was being treated. But he is resurrected to love, to take care of these that were despising him. So I think that resurrection in that context has a lot of power. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus was certainly an approval of what he did on the cross and demonstrating that it was God's will behind it. This was God's action and needed to be understood as such. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. According to Peter, how is that new birth going to happen? Resurrection power. The power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is sufficient to raise us spiritually from the dead, to change our lives, to make us new people. So the purpose of the resurrection is not simply to raise Jesus and approve of Jesus, but it was to demonstrate the kind of life change that is possible for us. And so Paul is still running on that track where he was talking about his own conversion and the life change, etc. But now he ties it to the resurrection and other writers of the New Testament support that. So the resurrection of Jesus is the first step. Life change in believers is the second step. The resurrection of all the believers is the third step, and that's in the future. But in the present tense, there is genuine life, resurrection power in our lives. Whatever it is that you can't handle, resurrection power is available. The power that can raise the dead can change your life. John, go ahead. To tie in what we're seeing about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, this doesn't only have an effect upon us. We discussed earlier that this has a universal effect and it demonstrates 
the power is not the right term because it suggests something that's forceful and demonstrates the glory of God, the character of God, that he wins the cosmic conflict through the sword of Lamb, as recorded in Revelation, and destroys him who has the power of death and wins all who are willing back to God universally. Thank you. Let's continue with 120. And we noted, of course, the power of the resurrection. He raised him from the dead. But then it says, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. What do you make of that? How do you sit at the right hand of the throne? Wouldn't that be a little crowded? Might you fall off the armrest? What do you make of that? For me, this was transformed by my first trip to Istanbul, to the Topkapi Palace, which is the Palace of the Sultan. You've heard about that from Aladdin and other things. We were in the Palace of the Sultan, and in the museum there, they had the throne of the Sultan. And I remember being there with Ranko Stefanovic, a you know, fellow scholar of Revelation. We looked at that, and suddenly, Revelation 5 and all these New Testament texts made sense. It was a couch. The throne of the Ottoman Empire was a couch. And we often think of thrones like an armchair, but often in the ancient world, it was more than that. And the person seated at the right hand of the king or of the emperor was the person who was of highest regard in the empire after the king himself. And so if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that means he's seated on the throne and everything is now under him. He has full authority over the whole universe. But here's where things get really exciting. Keep your finger right there. Move over a page if you need to. Ephesians 2 verse 6. What does Paul say? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the reason he says he's seated at the right hand of God, because that's the very place that we are seated. In Paul's mind, and this is spiritual, obviously materially we're not there yet. But spiritually speaking, when Christ sat down at the right hand of God, it was humanity sitting down at the right hand of God. You and I are at the right hand of God in Christ. There's another element of the in Christ, you see. In Christ, humanity has been elevated to the throne of God. Spiritually, we have already joined him on his throne. Revelation 3.21 says, To the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is already there, but according to Paul, we are already there too. And we have the promises of the throne. In the book of Revelation, each church gets additional promises until you get to Laodicea. And in Laodicea, instead of seven promises, you get just one. Sit with him on the throne. But if you're on the throne, you've got everything. So all the other promises, all 21, are collected in the promise to Laodicea. So Paul has this vision that God's people should see themselves as children of the king, seated on the throne. And any insecurity that one might have, any sense of inferiority, inadequacy, etc., look to where you stand or where you sit in Christ, and it changes everything. Jane? I would like to add to this discussion by bringing up a point in the current lesson. I would like to just read it. It says, central to the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul made this point very powerfully when he wrote, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So I want to go ahead and say it's worth remembering that Jesus came out of the grave with a glorified human body but he was still carrying the marks of his crucifixion, meaning that the risen children of God will likewise appear or bear the physical marks in their own sufferings. And like Apostle Paul says, will, will he still carry his glorified body by the thorn in the flesh and the marks of the Lord Jesus? So I find lots of power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only assurance I have as a Christian that even if I die, I will rise again. And Jesus overcame a sealed tomb 
like for as long as he lied in that tomb, the devil was triumphant. But he overcame that sealed tomb. It's so powerful. And then, of course, he did not come out of the grave alone. He came out with others as witnesses. So I find so much power in the rising of Christ and that like death is conquered. I feel hopeful in that thought. Thank you. Reach it, sister. <laughs> you know, I'm smiling about nine feet wide inside of myself because I actually had skipped over this question because of time. How important is the resurrection of Jesus for Christian faith? And the answer would have been the text that you read in First Corinthians. So you brought out that point without us taking the time to discuss it at length. So appreciate that very much. Yes, as far as Paul was concerned, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the whole thing was pointless. And that's very, very central to his thinking. Now, let's get back to these evil spiritual powers in Ephesians. And you'll notice it says in 121 and 2.2 and 6.12, and it asks the question, why do you think Paul was so interested in these powers? And I think we've already kind of answered that, so I won't dwell on that. Ephesus was a center of the magic arts in Paul's day. And you had the power of Diana, the power of the pagan gods, etc. So I think Ephesus is the ideal place to make some of the points that Paul is going to make now. But let's go to Ephesians 1.21. Ephesians 1.21. Are above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. All right. So Paul here says, above all powers and above every name that is named. Often in these incantations, these magical texts, they would have magical names, just like we had magical handkerchiefs. In the previous lesson, they were magical names, they were magical terms, they were magical objects that people were using to manipulate the gods to serve them, etc. And you'll remember in Acts, you had these seven sons of Sceva. What did they do? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, and in the name of Paul, I command you to go out. They were using incantations. They had found Jesus and Paul, and I says, okay, new ways to manipulate God. And oddly enough, the demon actually responds, oh, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but who are you? You see, just basically saying it's not about words. It's about relationship. So even the demons understood that this was out of line. But it gets more interesting. Ephesians 2.2. In which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. But what do you make of this? The ruler of the power of the air. I thought demons were underground. You know, hell is down there somewhere, right? Isn't that the way we mostly think? What is this? The demons of the power of the air. Actually, in ancient times, more often than not, these spiritual powers were seen as being in the atmosphere, not underground. Their dwelling is in the air. And that's an interesting development. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took captivity captive and he proclaimed victory over the powers. So when he ascended to heaven, the picture is he was being resisted all the way up by demonic powers. But in the power of the resurrection, he broke through and achieved the throne in heaven. So when you understand the ancient mindset, some of this begins to come together, I think. Chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, look at the language here. We're not fighting human beings, flesh and blood, against authorities, powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This language of the heavenly realms is used several times in Ephesians. It's often positively. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, but there's spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places as well. So in the mind of Paul and the people that he was writing to, it is almost like a cloud between us and God, Satan trying to blot out knowledge of God, blot out our access to God and to his power. 
So I think as we go further into it, we realize that Paul had a very keen sense of this cosmic conflict. And it isn't just on earth, it's in heavenly places. So cosmic conflict, even though it's not mentioned in the first part of chapter one, is a major theme within the letter. Number seven in your handout, verse 22, Ephesians 1, verse 22. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church. All right, so he has put all things under his feet. The all things would include those powers, wouldn't it? But here it completes the picture. Where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of God. Where are the demons? In the air. They are between us and God's throne, and they are under his feet. He has gained the victory over these heavenly powers. They have been placed under his control. They are beneath him. They may be above us, but his power is far greater than theirs. His power is greater than the pagans. His power is greater than the spirits. His power is greater than Rome. And he's also the head of the church. So the power of God's resurrection is exercised through the church. It's the context of God's rule over the universe. Whatever foes the church has, victory is guaranteed. Now, as I got to this point in Ephesians, I remembered Job. Can you remember Job as well? Was Job's experience typical or unusual? Job's experience of suffering. Was that typical or was it exceptional, unusual? What was Job's experience before and after? Michael. Well, Job suffered in ways that most people have never suffered. He lost his family. I mean, he lost his children. He lost his wife. So, And then was abundantly rewarded. But I think another aspect of Job is that nobody goes through life without any problems and difficulty. Everybody has problems and difficulties. And it's very personal. It doesn't help to say, you don't have the same amount of problems that Job did. That's not real to the individual. What's real is what that problem or difficulty or pain or disability that person is suffering at the moment. That's the one that needs the assistance, and that's the one that affects us, each and every one of us individually. So Satan was the one who did all of that to Job. Why didn't he do it all the time? Job had a great life before and a great life afterward. Why didn't Satan do that all the time? That's a good question, because I've puzzled over Job that God and Satan are going to bargain over this guy's life and play dice with him. It's a difficult read. <laughs> but what I'd want you to note is what does Satan tell God? What is his complaint about Job? You have put a hedge around him that I can't get at him. And yes, the story of Job is a challenging one. And <laughs> Everyone who's ever read it wrestles with its implications. But the point I want to take away today is that Job's experience was not the norm. It was the exception. And the reason was an exception is God removed his protection in a specific situation for a short time. And what it tells me is we are under constant protection. If it wasn't for that, things would be far worse for each of us than they are. We are under constant protection. All things are under his feet, including the demonic powers. They would love to do all kinds of horrible things, but they are limited by God, and that protection is there. So I guess some people say, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? And the other question is, if there is no God, why is the world so good? That's the real surprise, I think. Neil? The one thing that we see here is the great controversy in action, the challenge of God's judgment by Satan. And yes, there was a shield around Job, just as there was a shield around the children of Israel as they traveled through the desert, and God protected them. But here was the challenge. This was a direct challenge to God's judgment. And this is what we're all facing, and this is what's going on now in the great judgment halls for each one of us. All right, I want to get very practical here, and this may be a little uncomfortable, but Paul is wrestling with some stuff that we have a hard time grasping, and let's try to bring it home as much as we can. And you see that in number seven at the end. Were you ever to encounter demonic forces, how would you respond? Hopefully you never will, but if you do, how would you respond? Would you run? Would you just pray and be silent? How would you respond? What tools? might we have in this group that would be relevant at such a time? If we ever came face to face, a couple of you at least have already testified that you have. 
How do you respond in the face of such a presence? Bob? Well, my mom told us a story that when she was a young wife, she found out that she'd lived in a house that had been inhabited by, I guess, a witch. And one night the vacuum cleaner went on by itself and started vacuuming the house. So she prayed to God and turned it off and the witch never came back. That was 1930s. All right. Yeah. If you ran into something like that, I mean, that that was a simple solution. Turn it off. (laughs) And praying. And praying. (laughs) Yes. But if you came face to face and it was living, it was a human being that was exhibiting some of these manifestations. Let me clarify something I said in the first part of the series, talking about mental illness and demonic possession, the difference between those. I just want to clarify what I don't think I did then. I was talking about severe mental illness. Some brought up the idea of depression and other milder forms. Uh, That's not what I'm talking about. But when you get severe mental illness, it looks like what the Bible calls the demonic. How do you know when it's mental illness and when it's demonic? And we went over four things. One of them was, is it visible to you? If they're seeing things, are you seeing them too? If they're hearing things, are you hearing them? If you are, it's probably demonic because somebody's mental illness is not going to make sounds in your world and apparitions, somebody else's. Another one is if supernatural power, they speak a language that they've never learned, for example in the context of demonic manifestations. Another one is objects of power. If you remove certain objects and the symptoms immediately alleviate, that would be perhaps an indication of demonic possession. And then I think the fourth one was if prayer solves the problem, it's more likely demonic. If it's medicine solves the problem, it's probably mental illness. So those are just little categories that I shared with psychiatrists that they found helpful for the kind of things that they deal with. But I want to be clear, dealing with severe mental illness here, not just the garden variety kinds that all of us have some wrestling with at one time or another. All right, Nancy Wegeman. In the answer to your question, it's not about me who dealt with demons, but it was my grandparents. They were missionaries in India in the 1920s, and I've seen the letter she wrote about it. And they were both nurses trained at Battle Creek, and they took their children across the ocean. They replaced missionaries on furlough, which in those days, they were gone for several years at a time. And in this one place in the home, they were staying. The natives were very afraid of this home because when they'd walk by from the upper floor, sticks and stones would be thrown at them. And that happened a lot. And in her own handwriting, she said, and sometimes the shutters upstairs would slam and there is absolutely no wind in the banana trees and so forth around them. And one evening it was very bad and the shutters were banging. And I have to believe they had a strong trust in Jesus to go there in the first place. And she said she prayed and she went upstairs and it felt so dark and so oppressive, she said. But she said the name of Jesus and slowly walked across the room saying the name of Jesus. And I believe trusting in him. It wasn't a magic incantation. It was a trust. And she said it stopped and it was quiet and it was light. It felt peaceful and they never came back again while they lived there. Thank you. Yes, I think those are a couple of suggestions very much in harmony with what we've learned in Pine Knoll through the years. To carry God's acceptance with you, to be aware of his character, I think is critical. Rodney? I just want to say, in the side of my place in the South Pacific, the idea and belief of the demons is very, very, I would say, it's a huge influence. But I would like to just place an emphasis of child, my upbringing. I know my for fathers were sorcerers and they actually made something to a pastor who was there because he was fishing in a pool which they usually worship their god mm. and they said this person is intervening with our gods so they did something to him actually he got sick they they put a, a few things and they put it on the waterfall and as the water shakes that 
pastor got sick. But then one day they were waiting for the flood. So my great grandfather went down and says, I want to cut this off so that the missionary will die. So before he cut it off, he tried to see inside of that small bottle or small bamboo. He saw that all that stuff that he put in was all gone. It was all water. He knew from that time on that his God was not that powerful. So he cut that thing, threw it away, and went to the nearest mission station, and he became an Adventist. <laughs> As we were growing up, our parents told us there they are angelic beings that look after you as you go around. As I was growing up as a young teenager, I always want to experience, want to see. But you see, it does not happen because at the back of my mind, I'm thinking about angels and I'm trying to face this stuff, these evil demons. And I usually walk into the jungle around 12 o'clock in the night, trying to see if those things are true. I've realized that God's power surrounding you is more powerful and i was unsuccessful i never saw them because in my upbringing is different and i'm trying to face something as a teenager so i would say that when we consider god god's power and the demon it's like night and day when you have god's power obviously you have stated the power of darkness is not that powerful because you're with god i would just summarize this there thank you what said in Job, there's a hedge around you. Yeah. Livius? I was reminded when you said that God is at work in every religion and that Satan is at work in every religion as well. And I think that applies to each one of us. God and Satan are at work in each one of us. The demoniac in the Gerasenes, the demon that Jesus cast out, he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I think that sin doesn't happen all at once. The devil just doesn't come to us and present something bad. It comes little by little, a step here and a step there to start to separate and go on a different path. And before you know it, you're just lost and off in a bad way. And I think the devil works on us every single day with a thought of this, a thought of that, or an inappropriate reaction to something, yelling. It just comes randomly. And I have a personal experience that I think it's important. You mentioned a while back about the fruits of the Spirit. It's really important to understand the character, God's character, and how it relates to our behavior and how things can be contrary to that character, to God's character. I was having a conversation with my son a long time ago when he was in high school. And he reacted in such a way that was just out of character to him and disrespectful. It was almost in violation of honoring your father and your mother in Exodus chapter 20. And I recognized this behavior and he really wasn't aiming it at me. And I saw the devil in his words and I just wrapped my arms around him. And I just said a quick prayer. Jesus, I don't know what's going on with my son here, but if he is being attacked by an evil spirit, bind it and cast it out. And the minute I said that, he fell limp and was sorrowful and said, oh, I'm so sorry, dad. And that was that. But yeah, I just think that we don't know where we end and the devil begins sometimes. And it's really helpful to really know God's character. All right. Thank you. Sherry? When we lived in Alaska, I remember there was a young man who was quite proud of having taken the stance of being on the devil's side. It gave him power, and he really relished that. We had some interesting conversations. But what really breaks my heart is a mother and her daughter, who are listeners actually, have come under that spell and have had a really hard time getting apart from it. And the mother has managed to, but her life is very difficult. She said it's a constant struggle against the forces of evil that keep trying to recapture her. And she's very tired and it's a difficult life. And her daughter, she has asked for our prayers because the daughter has not escaped that and is causing problems to many, many people. And so the woman is in despair and feels that she is near death. She sent me her daughter's picture to pray for her and is quite despondent. So I think there are consequences sometimes to our choices. And sometimes it's not that easy for people who have come under that spell to be able to escape. And God is with them if they choose, but it's not an easy path to escape it. Thank you for that testimony. 
let me make some suggestions here and building on what some of you have said. First of all, if you were to ever face such an encounter, point out the lies, point out the lies. What Satan will always do is either exalt himself, run down God, or run down the person that is being afflicted. And I have seen this time and again. Things like Satan is the greatest, you are worthless, you are hopeless. Satan is seeking to tear down God's image, not only the image of God's character, but also the image of God in the human being that they are afflicting. And you'll hear statements about Satan is the greatest, and then I'm worthless, I'm no good, it's terrible what I'm doing here, etc. A sense of total worthlessness. And so one of the best things one can do at a time like that is simply point out the lies. That's a lie. You're not the greatest. That's a lie. You're not worthless. You're not hopeless. That's a lie that you've been exposed to, etc. So pointing out Satan's lies, I think, would be one response. A second one is trusting in God's acceptance of you. If you're insecure in your walk with God, you're not in a safe place when something like that happens. And to know that you are as right with God as you are capable of being at that moment gives one the confidence to face whatever comes without fear. I can remember one situation where a woman with long fingernails tried to hurt me, dug them into my arm, and it was just like it got so far and then stopped, could not go to the point of really hurting me. And I realized at that moment, God is not going to let that happen. And there was such a sense of calm and confidence in that situation. So to know that God has accepted you, I think is critical in such an encounter. And then finally, trust. And this is what Paul would say here. Trust in God's superior power. God is able. And if we trust in him, then God is able to intervene. As Sherry has pointed out, not all these situations are easily dealt with. And they need sometimes long-term therapy and follow-through as well. If there is genuine demonic involvement, there will be mental, physical, and emotional consequences for months to come and should not be ignored, but should be treated in the way that such things ought to be treated. So I think Paul was saying in the context of Ephesus, you're going to run into things that will seem overwhelming at times, but the power of God is greater. And I guess it all comes back to the whole thing. To what extent are you and I a battleground? Remember, God is at work, Satan is at work. Under whose authority are we living today? And how would you know? And I'll close with this. But it seems to me that there are evidences. The first evidence is your picture of God. If your picture of God is a positive one, or the biblical perspective of God, that's a miracle. People by nature have a very negative view of God. People are afraid of God. If you have confidence in a God who is beautiful, forgiving, gracious, on your side, etc., that would be an indication of the Holy Spirit at work. A second evidence would be your picture of yourself. If you feel worthless, etc., that's the influence of the evil one. But God sees the value in us and desires us to see the value in ourselves. I will qualify that. Feelings are a lagging indicator. You may know intellectually that you're right with God and still feel worthless and helpless at times. So feelings may take time to catch up with the confidence you may have in God's character and in the gospel. But if you know that you have value before God, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And one more, this is kind of a fun one. What is the soundtrack in your head? When your mind is in neutral, what's going on in your head when you're not controlling it, when you're not thinking about it? And I find often, you know, when my brain is just in neutral, you know, maybe like 4.30 in the morning or something, I'm just starting to stir. And there'll be a spiritual song as a soundtrack in the background. Wasn't even aware, didn't even know I'd chosen it or anything, but it's just going. I think that's an evidence. On the other hand, If when you're in neutral, it's constantly going negative, constantly going dark, constantly feeling worthless, then that would be an indication that renewing the picture of God, renewing commitment to God is a high priority because both God and Satan are after us. We're part of the cosmic conflict. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? Taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. What goes on in the inner life is maybe the clearest evidence of who's in charge. And those who have committed themselves to God, those who have become to know God, I think Paul is saying, they have nothing to fear 
of anything that Satan can do. And I think that is, perhaps it's not as obvious in the West as it is from where Jane comes from, where Rodney comes from, and there you're going to see more of this. It may be in the Western world, Satan doesn't want to manifest himself publicly, because when he shows his power, people get interested in God's power. So let the sleeping dog lie might be his strategy for most of us, to get us to stray in the simple things where we don't even think they're important. So maybe you'll never experience that kind of direct conflict, but know that we're part of that battle in any case. And it's in the thought processes that that battle goes on. And my prayer for all of us is that the Holy Spirit would set the soundtrack of our minds from this day forward. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this has been a challenging topic. You've brought us to this book and this part of the book. But Paul was confident that in the power of the resurrection, we had nothing to fear. In the power of the resurrection, you could use fallible human beings to bring resurrection power to others. And I pray that we would not come away feeling the darkness, feeling the danger, but rather come away rejoicing in your great power and your great love. And may the love that you have for us become more and more what we experience toward others so that we may glorify you in everything we do. For Jesus' sake, amen.